The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a star empire in the crosshairs, a cornucopia of short space opera, and a sextet of unlikely compatriots. Plus part two of DJ Butler's conversation with Charles E. Gannon, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. Today we bring you part two of our discussion with Charles E. Gannon about his new epic fantasy novel, This Broken World. But first, the news. A fresh batch of ERCs are in and they are doozies. First up, A Call to Insurrection by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope. This is a new installment in the Honorverse adjacent Manticore Ascendant series. Turmoil strikes a star empire. Not long ago, the star kingdom of Manticore was a small, unimportant interstellar backwater. Now, Manticore has become a target. The star kingdom isn't certain who is attacking it or why, but one thing is certain. Manticore needs a capable space navy, and it needs allies, such as the relatively nearby Republic of Haven and the powerful, experienced Andermani Empire. Enter Travis Long and his wife Lisa. It is their task to build that navy. Opportunity for Manticore beckons if Travis and Lisa can manage to navigate the fires of interstellar insurrection. Next up is Eliaden Universe Constellation Volume 5 by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Storytelling on an epic scale. For more than 30 years, the Eliaden Universe novels by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller have captivated readers with their unique blend of action-adventure, science fiction, and interpersonal relationships. Sure to delight longtime fans and newcomers alike, these 10 tales highlight why the nationally best-selling Leaden Universe novels are treasured by space opera aficionados with amazing settings, strong characterizations, compelling romance, and edge-of-the-chair action in stories that range from cosmic to comic. And finally, Library of the Sapphire Wind by Jane Linscold. Instead of mentors, they got monsters. That's what Zirak, Varys, and Grunwald think when three strange creatures shimmer into being within the circle of Hetua Shrine. And why shouldn't they? After all, they've never seen humans before. Margaret Blake, Peg Gallegos, and Tessa Brown are equally astonished, but also better prepared. A widely varied course of reading material has intellectually primed them for the idea that other worlds even other words where people, with traits more commonly ascribed to animals, may exist. But despite their differences, these mentors and inquisitors must join forces to solve an overriding mystery. Their first task, find the library of the Sapphire Wind, destroyed years before. There, they may find out how to ask the right questions to save themselves and the land of Overware itself. 
That's A Call to Insurrection, Aliadin Universe Constellation Volume 5, and Library of the Sapphire Wind, all available now as eARCs only at Bain.com. As most of you have probably heard, the U.S. is facing labor shortages and supply chain issues, affecting everything from toaster ovens to toilet paper. Unfortunately, these issues have affected us here at Bain as well. Uh, although not with the toaster oven or the toilet paper, we're good on both those counts. Thank you very much. However, as a result of issues beyond our control, the October trade paperbacks have been delayed. That is Gunfight on Europa Station and Infert Fury Born, which I talked about last week. These titles should be available in their trade paperback format soon, and we apologize for the delay. However, the ebooks are for sale now, so you don't have to wait for a physical copy. You can go to Bain.com or wherever you get your ebooks and download the books today. We're keeping an eye on these issues with the November and December titles, and we'll keep you posted if they are delayed. Though again, the ebooks for those will also be available on their on-sale scheduled date. DRM free at Bain.com, of course. Head on over to Bain.com and check out this month's Charles E. Gannon November ebook sale. To celebrate the release of his new novel, This Broken World, we're offering up a cornucopia of savings on Gannon's backlist. Save $2 per book on the award-winning Kane Riordan series and $1 per book on other Gannon backlist titles. The sale ends November 30th, 2021, and these prices are available wherever Bain eBooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Now for part two of DJ Butler and Charles E. Gannon's discussion about this broken world. If you missed part one, check out last week's episode. So let's talk a little more about, about Druidy. So uh, he becomes, practically speaking, an orphan at, you know, nine or so. Um, and uh, what, what happens to him? Where, where I, we already said he wants to become a legionnaire. Um, that's not how it develops. He's, he's brave enough. He's clever enough to be a legionnaire. He's kind, he kind of has a moment of military heroism early on. Uh, not kind of. He absolutely has a heroic moment. Um, how, how does his career unfold if it's not in the Legion then? Um, he becomes, he, first of all, he's, he's consigned to the archives, the, the archive recondite, um, which is, uh, it, it, you'll notice it's not secret, but it is recondite, which sort of com combines the, the idea of uh, not well known and probably off the beaten track. But it's also, it contains secret knowledge. There's inside it something that he learns of called the Hidden Archive, which we still don't know a whole lot about by the time we get to the end of the book. That is quite intentional. Um, it is one of the guns that I've put, one of the Ibsen-esque guns that I have put on the mantle. Uh, it will come down. It will shoot eventually, just not yet. Um, but he becomes an archivist or, or an assistant to the archivist, which is part of what fuels his, his knowledge, uh, the more he reads, the more he realizes that there's stuff that just doesn't make sense in the world. That's really, to some extent, where it comes from. Um, and then when he should be able to go into the Legion, he has continued there. However, in continuing there, he's made, um, he's made what's called a, a, a courier. And uh, what, what they are is that the, this is not just a lending library, so to speak. It's actively acquiring things. And sometimes it acquires things from very dangerous places. 
and uh, and this gives him an opportunity to uh, to sort of he he needs to be able, you need to be, I guess you could say a generalist, a bit of a jack of all trades to be successful at that. When he finally gets to the end of that, and he then thinks, finally, now they're going to, they told me I had to do this for three years, but then, then they were sure that I would get a, a, a legionnaire's position after this, a legionnaire's position. And um, it turns out that th there was small print we didn't see at the time, which was that, no, we can get you a military billet. And he's not made a legionnaire. He's made an outrider. Outriders are uh, what you would call, I guess, the equivalent of borderers, watchers, scouts, sometimes uh, not covert operatives in the sense that they are not, um, that they're trying to, to, uh, to imitate other people. But it is important that they should be able to, at least on a superficial level, blend in to another culture if they have reason to be there, that they are not, you know, they do not carry the flag. Their job usually involves decidedly not carrying the flag. And that becomes, um, and it is through that job that he has that experience on the plane that we're talking about. Because when he's on the planes, he's operating as a courier, uh, excuse me, as an outrider. And throughout the entire story, that is technically his job. But after he comes back from that, He's piled up so much leave and he had so much back pay that he says, well, you know, I want to answer one of these questions. So he goes back there and he has to find people to essentially, you know, go with him because he can't do this on his own. So this is so if there is the model of the, quote, party, it is or an adventurer band, it's to protect a guy who is going out to try to find why the world is broken and 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 not not there is a, there is one point where it is literally going to an old ruin and seeking out old knowledge but for the most part he just wants to get close enough to observe things that mo that are just simply legend or hearsay amongst most other people how do the urge live yeah where do they get their food from because yeah. every 10 years they come revening out of the mountains yeah but they never gathered enough food that we could ever see over those 10 years to come ravening out, but they need to come ravening out. How the heck does that make sense? How do you grow that population large enough to be literally a horde? They turn that into, there's a verb, it's hoarding. When one comes out as a horde, spelled with an E after the D, not an A in front of the R. And, um, and this is one of this, and this just leads him to other things, other inconsistencies. You know, uh, it, it makes no sense that a, a dragon, uh, that, that a giant would be able to stand erect without passing out because the, the blood flow, I mean, they've got to be, something's got, something's got to make that happen. And, uh, and other things that he looks out, seems, looks at, seem to, uh, seem to make, seem to be impossible. So he, that's how things evolve. And, and in the course of it, uh, his, his companions, the group that he's with, become less and less motivated by money and more and more sort of uneasily convinced that this crazy guy might be onto something, which to me is, is, is a, was a, was a, was a fun transition to write. Yeah. To, to the point where uh, late in the book, he, he confronts them. And basically says, look, you got to get in or get out. This is where I'm going. I, I'm exploring these conundrums. We're, we're, we're well beyond the, the, the origin at that point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and if, 
you know, if you really don't, because because they they, I don't want to spoil anything, but he he hears some overhears some conversations, in which they're sort of expressing. I mean, it's like any company or team, right? There's water cooler talk. People will grumble even when they yep. don't really mean it, right? They're they're in, but they're still going to say, you know, I, we could have got paid more or whatever. And he says, look, you, look, you know, you're in or you're out. And they say, oh, okay, we're in. Whereas at first, you know, they are clearly in it for the money. They sort of, in fact, in the, in the way they meet, they sort of manipulate him to their advantage. Uh, he is not always the sharpest knife in the drawer because he grew up in a very, very protected environment. Well, I like that. There's a little bit of an element of, of, of um, I don't know if it's naivete, maybe, but but he 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 wants to deal with the world on a, in a straightforward way, and he sort of expects the world to deal with him in a straightforward way. And in fact, you talk about these problems. The the fundamental challenge is the world says one thing and does another, right? It tells one story about the urgen, the the bent, right? And then you go, but that can't quite be that can't be the whole story because how come? Like, is there some giant bowl full of orc food underground and there's like a horde that builds up every 10 years and they come spilling out, right? And, and in fact, we don't really- and Then why would they go? If the bowl if the bowl stays filled, why would they leave? They're there, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, very good. So that's, so that's, the, that's the first conundrum, right? Is, is hey, uh, and, and so it's, 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 I love it. It's, it's the story is driven by his curiosity. Um, and uh, and so they go and they have and, and I want to you know I want to make sure I'm emphasizing this for for the listeners too. These are adventure stories, you know. So he they go and they have they have a something like a dungeon crawl. They go into the under. Yes, you could call it that. Yeah, you could uh, call it that. Yeah, sort of to rescue an orc. Well, although, like, no dungeon probably anybody's ever been in. <laughs> but go ahead, yeah. And uh, and it's got you know advent. It's got you know uh, monsters that attack them, and you know hiding from pursuit, uh, and and battling an orc shaman, uh, you know uh, uh, underground. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to give away too many spoilers. But but that's sort of the the first conundrum. And I will say he doesn't really. I think this is a wonderful philosophical point. He doesn't necessarily solve the conundrums. He he sees them more clearly is what he does. He sees that there's more complexity. You know, he, he eliminates answers. Well, it isn't because of X. It isn't because of Y. Um, is it maybe that other thing? He hears about something called the root. And maybe we'll talk about cosmology in a minute. But 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 the 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 denizens of the undergloom have some kind of connection with the spirit world. And it appears to be something called the root. Well, is it that? Is does that thing spew out? Well, we don't. We don't actually get an answer, right? We get more sophisticated questions, which I think is you know, wonderfully true to at least my experience. Um, so that's okay. So orcs is orcs is or Urgen is question one. What's what's uh, what's his second dilemma then? The second dilemma is the one that I, I sort of because they encounter some creatures in the the um, what are called the under uh, and uh, some of the creatures that come on there's the under gloom which is the upper levels and then or upper upper regions I guess you could say and the more the more adapted for a variety of reasons that species are to the deeper areas, then you move into a, a place where 
every it it almost becomes difficult for any any species that depends upon community to really persist down there. And as a result of that, that's called the underblack. And some things come up out of the underblack which make um, which which Druidane thinks, so oh, that must be the, the giants of legend. And he's told, no, that's not what they are. There's something else. So he when he goes back after this and he's returned to Dinara as he must periodically, at least in the, the early parts, and he starts, he has sort of not quite carte blanche, but damn close to it, uh, free reign of the archives. So he, now he's going back as a researcher instead of a helper. And he, he does research into it and he says, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. How do you know, he, he knows there are these very large animals that are that draw things around. Um, horses are not as prevalent as forms of, um, of moving in this world. As a matter of fact, um, one of the things, one of the things that makes horses uh, kind of, um, I guess you could say more of a luxury is that they just can't graze anywhere. I mean, that's true in our own world, but here there are, there are literally different grasses and some are called sweet grass and some are called sour grass. Sour grass will, will put even a sprinkling of sour grass, but they will be a problem. But unlike terrestrial grasses, they don't blend. They actually, these two different, the different kinds of grass seem to be at war with each other. Turf, literally, I guess you could say. How often can you literally use turf the war. word turf war? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> that's exactly what's happened. Um, and, um, and he, 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 you know, so he says, okay, fine. So, um, you know, we're, we're, where, do, how do these things stand up? How, do, there are these large animals that move things. They don't keel over, but he notices how they're built. And, and they're, because there are what are called, you know, natural philosophers who have sort of done the equivalent of like what Galen did with the human body in the Roman empire. You, you, how does it work? You look at it as a mechanism. And he said, well, this, this is how the blood flows. This is why they don't keel over. This is why, you know, it manages to distribute. And he says, well, then, you know, I wonder, but how would, a, but none of them are bipeds. None of them are bipeds. And, and they, they shouldn't look at all like us because a lot of these things have sort of second, secondary heart, you know, coronary structures, or they, you know, they, they have a whole bunch of adaptations in them. So he wants to go and find a giant because he wants to see what these giants of lore are, which he does which everybody is now absolutely, you know, this, this guy does one, the only thing you can be sure about the, 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 the quests that I guess you could say that Druidane self-imposes is that each one is more, is, is more ominous in the shape of it than the next. And they do find a giant and they find out that once again, the conundrum is bigger than he thought but they're totally wrong about who giants are, why giants are, and why they have the rep they do. Yeah. And in, in a real case of, of drawing the wrong conclusions from actions only seen externally, I would say the part with the giant is, is, my, uh, is, my, is, is a little bit of a, an indulgence in that. And it's like, you, th you know what you saw, but if you don't know why, you may not really understand it. You will only know what you saw, but, and that's uh, that's certainly the um, the thing that comes to pass in in that second that second conundrum. Yeah, I like that. He starts out looking at the uh, the Titan Drays are living, right? There are Titan. Yes, 
Yeah. And they're different from they're different from what are called the super guns. So Titan Drays are literally immense, usually quadrupedal creatures that are responsible for most movement of land goods um, and even people. Um, so that's uh, and so the super guns are the those species in the wild, which are almost gone now. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, and no, 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 very good. That's good. And, and also fossils, right? He also looks at uh, he, a little bit of the fossil record uh, and does some thinking about that. So I like this, you know, there's the, the sort of arc of his interacting with the giants. There's some kind of library work, some analogical thinking, right? So, so he's trying to build hypotheses or a mental framework to try and think about the question that he encounters out in the wild, right? The question, no, no thesis advisor hands him the question. He runs into yeah. it, <laughs> the underbloom, right? And so he, so he, he kind of, he, he takes his resources and then he goes and, and ultimately has to meet the giant, right? And then I, um, uh, it's, it's delightful that the, that the, I love the solutions. I, um, I think it's, it's, I love the way it's, uh, well, I like them objectively, but I also like the way it's consistent with this character who is from he's the it's the consentium, right? He's 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 a he's a more or less kind of middle class negotiated free culture, uh, and and so uh, to kind of connect to some of the things we've been talking about, right? He he takes this out into the world with him and says, "Look, this this kind of this behavior can help you." And tries to kind of you know uh, solve the problems not only of the giants but of course the people who whose farms have been smashed up by the giants uh, solve their problems. But I don't want to get too far into spoilers, so that's probably as much as I'll probably say. Probably so. Probably so. Yeah. Uh, um, so let's see. Does that bring us to dragons, or am I forgetting one here? No, you you got it. You got it. So, uh, well, uh, it's important to, to probably point out that the fossils are actually introduced hmm. in the in the course of the very first conundrum, and like as as with any foreshadowing, it's where you start, but it's also where, in a sense, you wind up. Yeah, you come back to the same the rock that goads, so to yeah. speak. Which makes me wonder. Anyhow, yes. Next, yeah. I'm sorry. Which makes me wonder if in book two we're going to have the conundrum of the sweet grass and the sour grass now, because I, I can see now that that's that's also a sort of interesting question uh, that I had observed but not thought of as a conundrum. So uh, anyway, anyway, <clears throat> we'll find out. Uh, so so dragons. What what are the thing? What are the things? What what are the inconsistencies in the stories he hears about dragons? What what does uh, Druidane find challenging? What's the conundrum? Well, there are several. If you want to break it down, it's that anything that large, and they do turn out to be every bit as large. Well, no, they're not every bit as large as reported, although it turns out that there may have been larger ones at one time. Um, what's happening on this world, actually what we've observed on our own, uh, humanity or any similar uh, species that is a tool using species that has the potential for explosive population growth really does tend to crowd out a lot of other species. It, it, there's almost no way around it. And, um, and so one of the things he learns is that there aren't, as a matter of fact, most people think the dragons were all gone. Well, he discovers they're not. 
Uh, but in the course of researching them, one of a couple of the conundrums, first of all, if they are as large as reported, and he will discover that certainly, certainly it's not, it's, you know, somebody hasn't taken the size of something the size of a crocodile and turned it into some huge beast. No, these are huge beasts. The other thing is that, how, so question one might be how did they move? That could be one thing, but the, the more difficult one is flight. So if you, you're talking about a creature that weighs at least a metric ton, maybe several metric tons, what sort of bone structure does it have to have to be able to fly? Because like I said, natural philosophers, they've looked at animals, they've looked at their own animals just for veterinary purposes. They've looked at corpses in the way Galen did to be able to bring science forward in terms of, you know, healing processes, which in this world are predominantly not mystical. There, there's, there is not some mysterious economy of florid magic use. Magic use, and it's not even called magic for very, very special reasons, um, is, is a sort of rare application. It has, it has, um, it has consequences uh, of one form or another, we'll say. But, uh, but the bottom line is, so they know, they know a fair amount about anatomy, right? And he's seen bones of some of the largest Titan greys, the ones that are larger than any, than, than certainly the, the dragons that are ultimately discovered. But even their bones, the problem is now you want to take something aloft that weighs several tons on wings, first of all, wouldn't the muscles and the wouldn't the tendons snap free because if it's active flight then you're having to produce you have to pump you have to pump the wings to get thrust to lift several tons you know steel might be a good solution but bones aren't going to be and most and most flying creatures are going to need actually fairly flexible bones when you get right down to it for the purposes of flight and Let's. Yeah, I'm not here to, to to go into anatomy or zoology, but nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense that any dragon should be able to fly. There's also this question that they are that breath is attributed to them, and he's yep. like, "What the hell is that about?" So he goes and um, once again, uh, what he finds yeah. is nothing like what he expects. Yeah, there's a whole series of questions, right? Like, how can they still exist uh, if if they still exist? Um, but they're this rare, how can they possibly reproduce? Yeah. Uh, how do that, they feed? Uh, yeah, what, 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 what's with this piles of treasure stuff, right? What's the point of- Oh, oh yes, yes, I have a great deal of fun with that one, yes. Yeah. I, what, <laughs> what is with this piles of treasure? Yeah, one of, I, one of the fun moments for me, I think it's maybe not too much of a spoiler, is, is the dragon has a very short neck, right? Yes. It's a very short neck. It's more like a bat, maybe, structurally. Because of course, there's no reason for it to have a really long, right? It just it makes it harder to eat. There's more mass to carry. There's no good reason for a dragon to have. Absolutely. And if you're actually going to carry something away, you want, and also the sort of shearing and tearing motions, yeah. you want something solidly attached. Yeah. I mean, look at a crocodile or an alligator. They don't even have necks per yep. se. Yep. And close to your claws. Yep. Yeah. So that was, and the dragon turns out, you you kind of alluded to this, but the dragon's a very uh, wise, sort of sophisticated. Uh, Not to wise, say wise acre. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, uh, he sees through Kant, you know, 
maybe maybe from his position it's pretty it's maybe it's more obviously can't than from than from uh druidanes but that's a that's a uh, some fun fun encounter and again you get to kind of some negotiated solutions sort of um at least clever solutions it was a lot of fun um now okay so now the final this is interesting right the final the final conundrum is humans the final conundrum is humans and uh really maybe you know what we're seeing is the unfolding at least to some extent of the conundrums we've been seeing all along with like druidane's career and the thing we we, we hear people kind of whispering about around him we don't quite understand and there are secret movers in darkness uh but then we also come into this this other kind of uh historical kind of problem so um and all of this is tied together i don't think we get resolution by any means i think we're going to see some of these things in the subsequent books but what what are the conundrums what are the human conundrums druid dane is dealing with well, that is kind of hard to talk about without spoilers. But the bottom line is that there's a there's a period in this world. There are there are probably two inflection points. In addition to a very very unclear origin, apparently there's a race called the Ulamanter, who are long lived. Uh, have apparently some sort of symbiotic relationship with what might be trees and are, um, but let's say they're, they are long live, but the way they attain their long life is, um, is pretty unique and pretty disturbing to a, lot of other, uh, to a lot of other species. Certainly what I would call conventional humanity um, and probably would be for a lot of conventional humanity now, judging from certain attitudes that, that persist. Um, but uh, the, so you have an, a, a very unclear origin, but the origins are someplace back behind what's left of the recorded history of the Ulamantra. The Ulamantra ultimately sort of undo themselves at some later point, and that's sort of the, the end of a historic era. Then there's a later point, and it's unclear how much later, there's what's called the cataclysm. The cataclysm apparently is a, a, a tectonic or planetary event, which might which causes certain changes, and it's un, unknown what the changes are. Um, but there's certain certainly were some land masses that um, it's not like you know the entire surface change. It's not like one moment you're Earth and one moment you're Pangaea or something like that. It's but certain things go away, certain things rise up. And uh, and other and communities and ethnicities show up. Uh, demo demographically distinct groups seem to appear, and it's unclear whether they were just products of things that arose in between the the um, in between the cataclysm and then recorded history. But Druidane gets word of a place he can go to find out a little bit more about whether that is the case, what really did happen. And at the end, you don't know why, but it's pretty darn clear that things are not always as they were. That's not a surprise, but they changed with dubious speed. Yeah. 
So, so I will point out there is another kind of Tolkien parallel here, right, to the sinking of Numenor and the bending of the earth so that Arda is no longer on it. Now, we haven't seen very much of the Ula Mantra yet, but, but I, I think you're stealing from the best, which is great. Well done. Um, well, I didn't even think, no, this is, I, I will say, just free for all, it is, um, this is, this is, this is not on the scope of a, a global flood. This is not on this, this scope of the world changes. It's, it's for the most part, some land masses are, are apparently uh, fractured mm. and others arise as a result. It is, um, and the cataclysm doesn't bring the end of a major age, not because the Numenor, of course, is really a very Atlantean parallel. It's, yeah. it, it, it always struck struck me that way. This isn't so much that because really, whatever existed at that time was did not hadn't left as large a mark as the as the Ulamantra did, and apparently was all didn't leave a, a mark even as large as the empire of the silver eagle which was that next sort of phase that's sort of the once there's there's an imperial phase where there's an empire before uh this the the dunaran empire they say it's not an empire it's a consentium and everybody else says bah it's, a, it's an empire we know an empire when we see one uh there was one called the balashan empire which is referred to a couple of times in the course of the novel but whatever Whatever happened was apparently more of a geological event in that while it certainly disrupted societies, it did not signal the downfall of a, of a, of a sort of world organizing or, or, um, or it, it, it did not wipe out um, a, a great state. So uh, in, in terms of leaving, leaving research and understanding of the world. Yeah. But Although it did, but the records were lost. Yeah. So the history as told in Druidane's time appears not to be what actually happened. Right. Right. This is this is kind of the basic issue. His 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 conundrums basically usually arise from a mismatch between what people say and what the evidence on the world on the ground. Exactly. Yep. It seems to indicate. And, and this conundrum gets us into another kind of a dungeon crawl, but here's where we're specifically. Oh, yeah, at. I guess. Yeah, I guess. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, fantastic. So, okay. So what about cosmology? I mean, this, this basically brings us, you know, to sort of the end of book one, because we're, we're trying to avoid spoilers here. Um, but um, talk to me about cosmology. So, so there's a, let me make sure I get these terms right. There is a, a, a great tract. So I'm, I'm imagining something like an other world. If I try to imagine like a, a cohesive single other world, okay? And maybe this is the wrong metaphor. There's a, there's a great tract, which seems to be kind of like the wilderness. And some people, uh, druids have a connection with the great tract. Maybe if you are uh, if you're a, a practitioner of animist kinds of worship, maybe maybe you end up in the great tract. Maybe you know your the the powers you work with live in the great tract. Every god has a a creed land, right? Uh, there's also the root, which we don't we don't know what connection the root has to. Uh, at least I I don't think we know what the connection the root has to the rest of these. Um, and then there's the there's a, the wildscape, 
which I don't I don't know what the wildscape is. I think it's different from the great track. Do you do you have a like a map metaphor uh, idea for how these places relate? Do, do, how do you think of them? Uh, a map is the last thing I have in mind. Uh, they are. Uh, <laughs> they are. They are different. Um, maybe let me go to the beginning. One of the things that happens early in the book, which is another thing which will become increasingly important again as we get to the end, is that um, you uh, there's there's a, a process whereby one becomes a member of a faith. Yep. Okay. Uh, and and it takes place in what's called an epiphanium. And at that point, usually beforehand, uh, a, a, a servant, a sacrist um, of, the, uh, of that particular faith will have uh, sort of had a relationship with somebody. And usually at about the age of 10, 11, 12, they're in, invited to come into the Epiphanium. And at that point, the, the deity, if deity it is, sort of shows them the pathway into the creed land or possibly now, pardon me or possibly doesn't right? or well a, a pretty a pretty rare occurrence that's yeah. all we'll say uh but in this case a very foundational one um and the thing about it that's the, to me the thing to to focus on is that these are all experienced in dreams mm -hmm. one of the things that makes uh that is a, a major cultural feature in throughout the globe, this is one of this is one of the the few globally pervasive things, is that once you've been accepted into a creed land, that is where you dream at night. Your dreams are of going through this creed land, of being in that creed land, and beforehand you're in a sort of safe place. But the great tract is not a creed land. The great tract is creation, forces of nature, who knows what. Um, it is, it is a, I wouldn't call it idealized, but it, but certain brutish elements have been removed um, uh, in, in, in that it is, if there is a struggle for life and death there, it isn't very clear. Things hunt, things are hunted, things graze, and yet all is as it should be. Um, it would be a very comforting place if you were, if, if you were thinking more in Zen terms, I suppose. Um, the wildscape, the thing that de demarcates wildscape is their dreams. Wildscapers, uh, or, or these folks dream, I guess to put it lightly, or to put it most directly, the way you and I would. Generally, they, they may not even be narrative. They're very often terrifying. They're very often jumbled. They're very often chaotic. Uh, they can be all sorts of projections of fears of wish fulfillment fantasies, and there is no there is no organization to them. No, in, in whether you're in the Great Track or whether you're in the Creedland, there's a sense that something's in charge. Mm -hmm. Nothing goes wrong in the Creedlands, and you that's where you go at night. When you dream, you go to this place that is not only rest when you sleep it's not only restful for your body it's literally restful for your mind if that sort of thing is restful but as you could imagine asking the questions that drew dane does he's uh he's he, you know he's um he's not going to follow the normal path i think you could say or you might say he's prevented from 
following the normal path, yeah, which may be a good thing or maybe a bad thing. He, he seems to be invited to a door that doesn't open. Uh, it's a remarkable kind of moment. Yep. And he, uh, and as, but as other people suggest, as, and this is part of the process of this novel, this may not have been a rejection so much as a redirection with yeah. a purpose. And we don't exactly know what that is at the end because then I have nothing left to write about. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's interesting. So that gets us to sort of one of the big conundrums. Uh, and, and, and maybe maybe we'll just indicate that it exists and not talk about what it is. Uh, but but uh, Drew Dane, um, apart from the kind of person he is, there are clearly some extraordinary things about him that we don't understand what is driving them, right? Uh, he, he has this, a, a strange experience with the gods early on. Maybe it's yeah. a redirection. Um, some magic seems to react strangely around him, mm -hmm. right? Um, so uh, at least in book one, although he notices these things and asks about him, he doesn't phrase them. He hasn't turned his gaze inward to make himself his own conundrum yet, maybe. Um, he doesn't think he could be possibly that important. He, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, the, the world, uh, yes, giants are more important than I am. Dragons are more, who am I? I'm just, I'm just me. It doesn't matter. I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy. It's, it's not, it's not self-denigration. It's just simply he doesn't, he, when he gets up in the morning, he doesn't look in the mirror and say, I am all that. You, you are know, that's, the chosen one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the scar on my forehead tells me. Yeah. Um, very interesting. Uh, so, uh, I guess I will, I will phrase this as a, as, as a question, because I don't know how you want to answer this. This connects back to our earlier conversations about genre, but also to this Druidine and stuff. You know, one of the staples of epic fantasy is the existence of a dark lord, uh, Sauron, Voldemort, whoever, right? Uh, whose presence um, threatens the order of things. Uh, and, and it's actually interesting, um, well, Someday, probably not today, I want to have a conversation with you about, you know, uh, does epic fantasy have some intrinsically politically conservative tendencies in that it is about protecting the status quo from someone who would disrupt it like superheroes? But, but man, that's a whole other conversation, maybe. Um, here's my much smaller question for you. Uh, uh, is there a Dark Lord in this novel? Or, or what is the Dark Lord? So. That would be, um, I think, I think it's uh, safe to say, take a look at what we've been talking about regarding where the quote forces of, if we want to call them goodness, or at least let's say accountability are, they're diffuse. There's no great shining city on a hill. Oh, I mean, he thinks there is when he first sees Thulanthu, which is the capital, a very old city, a pre-human city that happens to be now the, the, uh, the, the first city of Dunara. But as we learn, there's a lot of, there's, as, as he comes to learn with some surprise, there's a great deal more dissent in that city than he ever guessed growing up. By the end of the novel, he gets an idea of just how deep that runs. Yeah. And, and in the same way, 
Um, I know there's a kind of, there's always a trait, I guess, in, in epic fantasy of you make, there's a sort of an, an intense desire to democratize, I would say the forces of good. Not surprising, I think, particularly in the Western context of how would we really feel good about there being a supreme ruler who was all good and all knowing and all, et cetera, um, at the expense of our ability to explore our individuality. And usually, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that one couldn't construct a story which manages to do those two things, but I think the simple dodge, so to speak, is to say that at some level in epic fantasy, the forces of good are usually, the, what makes them good in part is they're not inherently imperial forces. They're not trying to impose their will on others. They're trying to protect their ability to exercise their own will or just live their lives as they wish, whatever that means, whatever the, whatever the nature of the community may be. Um, and that usually the dark Lord or whatever else is, you know, so at some level it's diffuse communal and altruistic. And on the other hand, what do we usually have with the dark yard? It tends to be unitary, egocentric, megalomaniacal, right? It, it wants all things. It's the eye of Sauron. It's, it's, you know, it's that thing gathering it in. I would posit that if by the end of the novel, there's even a hint of that, I would be surprised because I think one of the things that's showing up in the novel is actually that, and I think this is, this is where, one of the things that makes it slipstream in a kind of subtle way, the further out you go to polarities of power, whatever they may be, they tend not to be so unitary. They tend to be diffuse. I mean, even if we think about the most totalitarian states on the planet these days, um, they're, they, they, the ones that would like to look like they are in fact a perfect pyramid with only one being at the, or one person or one, one uh, politician or, or, or overlord at the top, it's rarely the way it is. And, and the, the degree of control is, a, is, is never as great as, as perhaps desired or desirable. And on the level of, and on the level of, if you will, good or altruism, you know, the, the difficulty of, about, us, uh, about any community, I think, or any society is the bigger it gets, the more, the more compromises that might be made. And you might find as much constraint coming from that side as the other. So I would say that intrinsic to the kind of, um, the, the kind of, as you were saying, you earlier, you say I interrogate everything. And as I said, when I find an interrogation that as far as I'm concerned, doesn't, doesn't necessarily do fantasy any favors, I'm really interested in subverting those assumptions that, that accountability, altruism, whatever you want to call it, is always inherently going to be the good guys or gals or folks or things or beings or whatever. Just as on the other side, evil may not be. It might aspire to be as all-powerful as we frequently see in the books, but usually that's not how things work out. Uh, I think that uh, I think that these things. One of the things that I'm getting at is, if at the end of the books, and, and the mere fact that you can ask me the question, tells me that as far as is from from Dave Butler reading, it's like, so who's the big bad? And all I'm going to say is, as I started, stay tuned. Yeah. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. Maybe it's more complicated than that. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't, I don't see them in book one, except that there's this really interesting conundrum around Druidate, right? And like, where, where does that go? Yeah. So, uh, fantastic, fantastic. Well, and particularly because you could say the conundrum you're speaking about, Druidane, the thing, we like to think that every conflict that could destroy a nation, could destroy a world, would somehow resolve itself down into these are the forces of evil or at least greed and and uh, and and power power hunger for power and these are the ones that are not doesn't necessarily work out that way and sometimes it can be two forces that have their own different takes on what needs to be done to protect things that can wage terribly violent wars on each other no. so another way that i'm uh, in the process of subverting fantasy as well as having fun with some of its with with poking holes in its tropes but lovingly i like i'd like to say i'm poking loving holes in the tropes and that's why i don't i i wouldn't say you're deconstructing it i don't think that yeah, you're denigrating the value of uh the willingness to personally take risk or the you know the value of personal heroism you know um or or the value of altru altruism right uh, and integrity yeah Integrity, so, personal integrity. Yeah, fantastic. And doing all this in a uh, in in a gripping media adventure story. So so very. Uh, it's a lot of fun to read. Well done, Chuck. I, I I hope folks will say, "What's not to like?" You know. <laughs> very good. Well, is there any is there anything uh, that you wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on? Uh, I I. I don't want to tax anybody's time more than it's already been taxed. I, it's, I'm an author. I wrote a book. I could talk forever. That's what everybody fears. I'm not going to do what you fear. I've already done more than I thought I would. Thank you so much for lavishing all this time and these very thoughtful questions, Dave. As always, I've had a great time being on the show. Hey, thank you, Chuck. Uh, hey, once again, the book is This Broken World, out now from Bain Books in hardcover and ebook. Uh, Dr. Gannon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. And one last thing. It's not, however, when you look for the series, look for The Vortex of Worlds. Oh, it's the okay. first book in The Vortex of Worlds. And the next one, which I'm writing now, uh, is, called, is called Into the Vortex. Okay. The Vortex of Worlds is the series. Mm -hmm. Book one is This Broken World. And the next one coming is This Vortex, uh, the, uh, Into the Vortex. Into the Vortex. So, um, so maybe that's a little bit of a foreshadowing, eh? Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Thanks very much, Chuck. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Good seeing you, Dave. And now another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Three. Fabet, Wathayet calmed as they cleared the gate. Fabet, is he in the dragon's tears again? Don't think so, Drath replied. I locked it up. Did you get the jug? Yes. Oh, hell, Wathayet said as his customs cutter approached. Ship, spinward crossing, heave to and prepare to be boarded. We're getting hit by the nosies, Wathayet calmed. Just stay cool, man. 
It's all good, Drath replied. There's no special import duty on this stuff. There will be if they see Fabbit. You seem to be in compliance with all applicable regulations, the customs bot said dubiously. You are, however, officially notified of note of seizure by the Onderal Banking Corporation for non-payment of mortgage on the Spinward Crossing, and you owe back payment for parking orbit charges of 484 credits on Glaucod Station. I don't have that on me, Wathayat said. I've got two and a half pounds of gold. Checking. That is acceptable to prevent immediate lockdown. Full payment is required before leaving parking orbit. Your ship is required to go to holding area ZA-4 pending further determination. I have thirty days to challenge the seizure order, Wathayat said. He knew that one like the back of his hand. Correct. Your ship cannot be seized for thirty days. However, it will be held in orbit until full payment is made of back charges on mortgage, including any appropriate penalties and unpaid parking, including levied fines. Fine, fine, Wathayat said. But I've got thirty days, right? That is correct, the robot said, spitting out some forms and handing them over. You are free to move to Holding Area ZA-4. Have a nice day. Wathayat didn't even want to open his hypernode link. He knew what it was going to look like. But he had to call a cab to get to the station, since they wouldn't even let them dock. Captain Wathayat, this is Agent Gurinther, representing Onderal Banking Corporation. As soon as his hypernode link was open, everybody he owed money to knew it, and their bots went to work. I've got to make trade before you can get paid, Wathayat calmed back. As soon as I can move my cargo, you'll get paid. I confirm that I have been contacted. Any contact in less than one week's time will be defined as harassment. Very well, Captain Wathayat, Agent Gorinther replied. I see that you have officially accepted note of seizure. Your ship will not be... Got it, Wathayat calmed. We're done. Goodbye, damn it. That was a lot of bots. Captain Wathayat, this is Lerdurgal Company. You are three months behind on your... Damn! Wathayat said, closing the call. Varora Taxi! Captain Wathayat, this is the... Damn! Fortunately, the taxi bot was programmed to take metals in trade. That was one of the reasons he used Varora. They took any form of exchange and no questions asked. On the other hand, he couldn't take the tube way. He checked and all his bank accounts, even the ones he thought nobody knew about, were levied and emptied. Any money going in those was down a black hole never to return. So anything that required a hyperpay was out. That meant walking. Fortunately, they didn't charge for air for five days, or the security bots would see if he could breathe vacuum. It took him about 30 minutes to reach Kolu's. When the door dilated, he took a deep whiff. What a fine perfume. And all the usual suspects were lined up at the bar. Wathayet, they chorused. Where's my money? You owe me a round, you welshing bastard. 
That Corbot you sold me was defective. Glad to see you guys as well, Wathayet said. Be with you in a minute. You have a hell of a lot of nerve showing your face in here, Kolu bellowed from behind the bar. Where's my fifty credits? I have something better, Wathayet said cheerfully. This had better be good, Kolu said suspiciously. Let's just say that the Gordonaut fire gems didn't exactly take off, especially since they all went out the day after you shipped out. This is good, Wathayet said, sitting down and setting a bulb on the bar. Put some in some water, just a bit. I should let you try it straight. Be a fine day when something can get me drunk, Kolu said, pouring a bit of the syrup into a cup and sniffing. What is this stuff? He calmed a moment later. He couldn't talk because his snout was stuck in the cup. Dragon's tears, Wathayet said. It's a rare and precious viand from a previously undiscovered planet. Like you take the chance on going through an unchecked gate, Kolu said, shaking his head. Damn, it's got a kick, don't it? He pulled out a bunch of shot glasses, put a drop of syrup in the bottom of each, then filled them with water. Here, Kolu said, sliding the shots down the bar. Try this stuff and see what you think. What is it? Inger asked suspiciously. Dragon's tears, Wathayet said. Try it. It'll put hair on your back. Sorry, Garkar. Screw you, Wathayet, the mangy Glatun said, taking a sip. Holy hell, he added, dropping the shot. Another, if you please, bartender. That is fine stuff. Money on the bar, Kolu said. Five credits a shot. Five credits? Ingar said, you haven't even bought it from Wathayet. Hey, Wathayet, you owe me like 15 credits, 17 with interest. Give Inger four for free, please, my host, and we need to talk trade. Schmerg, Kolu said to the Rangora, you've got the bar, set him up, drop of this, dragon's tears in each shot. Got it, the Saurian said. Don't know what you guys are getting so excited about. Try some sulfur petals. I am not paying 700 credits for a barrel of this stuff, Kolu said. No way, no how. Everyone knew that Kolu owned about a 100 businesses on the station and the planet below, but he ran them all out of the dodgy little room behind the bar, and if he slept anywhere else, nobody had found out about it. It was rumored that he had a pile of osmium under his bunk, big enough to drive a battle cruiser. Hey, you saw how they took it, Wathayet said, topping up his glass. And I'm not going to get so hammered I say yes. Four hundred credits for the barrel. Isn't going to happen. I need a hell of a lot more than that to get my ship out of Hawk. Look, I'll give you this. Six hundred. Give me half now. I need to go get the barrel, and I need enough money to get it from the ship to here. You can have the jug I brought for free. You're going to make more than six hundred off that jug alone. I'll give you one barrel at six hundred, 
And when I get more, I'll keep selling you that stuff at 600. You know it's going to catch on. I'm going to sell the rest of it at bid, but for you, my old friend, I'll lock in the price. 500. I think I've got that much in the drawer. Done. But I need it on a cash chip. You're asking a lot. What? He asked as Schmerg stuck his head through the door. The room was soundproofed. It was now apparent there was a lot of shouting in the bar. You either need to get out here or call in to Gork, the Rangora said. I can't keep up. What do you mean you can't keep up? Kolu asked. It's just Inger, Garkauer, Hathen, Fandent, and Bob. How much can they be drinking? It was just Inger, Garkauer, Hathen, Fandent, and Bob, Schmerg said. But Inger calmed Mungaugau, and Hathen called his pear brood, and Fandent called his ship. And I need some help out here. So, that's five hundred, half now, half when I deliver, and both on a chip? Wathayet asked. I'll go get the chip. Holy hell, Wathayet said as the tractor bot stopped. There was a line outside of Kolu's. Schmerg was now working the door, the Saurian towering over the horde of Glatoon. Go on through, dude, Schmerg said as Wathayet pulled the grav bar off the tractor. Watch yourself. The party is in full swing. Wathayet! About half the bar chorused as he pulled the barrel through the door. It was packed from side to side, and most of them were hitting shots as fast as Tagork could pass them out. There were two more Rangora Wathayet didn't recognize circulating with shots. Kolu liked Rangora because they didn't drink anything he stocked, and most species didn't give them crap no matter how drunk or stoned they were the problem being when Rangora showed up for work already hammered. Then it was just call for security bots and clean up the damage. Get that stuff in the back room fast, Kolu calmed. We're nearly out, and when we run out, I'm afraid there's going to be a riot. What kind of connection is this? Kulo asked as Wathayet rotated the barrel up into a holder. It's called a screw, Wathayet said, primitive planet, figure it out. I've got three more containers of dragon's tears. I'm going to head over to Thamo and Uathas. If they haven't heard about this, they will soon. But I'm not selling it for 500 credits, that's for sure. Oh, hell, Wathayet said as he stepped through the airlock. Fabit was passed out in the passageway. Drast! Was up. The purser calmed. Where the hell are you? Sec unable to process transmission. Secure room, Wathayet muttered. He went down the passage and was unsurprised to see the door wide open. The purser was lying on the ground in a puddle of syrup. Fortunately, he'd gotten the cock closed at some point. As Wathayet walked in the room, the purser rolled over on his side and started licking the deck. Oh, get up, Wathayet said, pulling him to his feet. I need you to take a shower for one thing. Kurgo, that's probably a couple of thousand credits of syrup you guys just drank. And spilled? And it's coming out of your share. Zzz, never mind. 
He got the purser and the engineer into their bunks, rekeyed the door to his own codes, and got down to work. He dropped off bulbs of dragon's tears at four more places, and he had enough money to placate most of his minor creditors. Not pay them off, just placate them. The major ones were all on hold. He'd taken one barrel to Kulo's. Drast and Fabbit had broken into the one he'd been using for samples, but they couldn't really drink all that much of the stuff. More had probably spilled on the deck, so call it two-thirds left. Four and two-thirds barrels. He dropped that for bid onto the hypernet to see what happened. This is a rather unusual request, Mr. Tyler. Robert Lyle was a senior associate with Bertram, Bertram, Hudson, and Slavens, a Boston law firm that had fought its first tort case in British court. He wasn't quite sure about his newest client, but when the CEO of Verizon calls and suggests that you arrange a meeting, it was considered wise to do so. The conditions and subject, however, were bothersome. While we do sometimes have clients who might have accidentally bent one of the numerous laws and regulations of the United States or international courts, we prefer... I'm not trying to break or bend the law, Tyler said, and I'm not sure I'm talking to the right person if you can't even get my name straight. Tyler Vernon. All I want you to do is arrange some perfectly legal purchases. I simply don't want those purchases to be reported as associated with me until they have all or mostly been completed, and they need to be distributed so as not to be obvious. This is quite a bit of land, Mr. Vernon, pardon me, Lyle said, and a large number of operating businesses, and you simply wish that the owners be unaware? I need it for everyone to be unaware, Tyler said. Totally confidential. I'm talking to you. You don't even tell your people who is doing the buying. We'll figure out some way to slush the money quietly. It'll probably have to be through shell companies. As long as it is eventually reported to the IRS, it's no problem, right? Bit more than the IRS for this level transaction, Lyle said. And we're talking about a good bit of money. Yeah, Tyler said. Money's not an issue and your firm can't make the purchases directly. I chose you because you work some very big deals, and you can probably cloak the purchases. Three or four other firms, brokers, etc., all behind proprietary layers. If the government isn't the issue, Lyle said, looking puzzled, why are you cloaking these purchases? Oh, the problem's the Horvath. Tyler said, it's the Horvath we need to not associate these purchases with me, at least for a while, as long as possible. Now you are getting completely out of my field, Lyle said. Anything involving the Horvath has national, international security issues. The government is generally aware of what I'm doing, Tyler said, and not against it to the point that they can find a policy with both hands. All I'm doing is engaging in honest trade. Now, are you going to take the job or not? Obviously, the commissions are going to be quite remunerative, yes, Lyle mused. I'm sure we can manage this. 
as long as we're not in jeopardy of violating bar regulations. But I have to ask, why do you want to own, how did you put it, every single square inch of land that can produce maple trees? Sugar maple, Tyler said with a smile. That is, as I say, proprietary. And there are some qualifiers on it. Anything that is currently on the market, buy first. Then concentrate on things which have been traded in the last 10 or 15 years and corporate holdings. Get as many of the new crew out of the area as possible. At that point, the price is probably going to be running up pretty solid and we'll be hitting some diminishing returns, so the old families might start to sell. But try to keep other corporate entities out of the area. Most important of all, I want you to buy one particular piece of property for the absolute best price you can get it, which means it should be one of the first properties bought. Put the best person you can find on it. Research the target. Find vulnerabilities, blackmail, anything. Absolutely screw her. Her? Yes, Tyler said. I especially want her land. Make sure you get it for a price that she'll go for but still feels vaguely screwed. She'll find out how screwed later. I'm not normally the sort of person to screw widows out of money, but there are widows and widows. The name is Mrs. Angelina Cranshaw. We're rich. We never have to work again. If I can keep you guys from drinking it all, Wathay had said sourly. And we've got to go do one more run to Earth. Then we'll be rich. Dragon's Tears was good. There was no question of that. But mostly... It was new and different. Despite trading with hundreds of different species and despite Glatoon corporate departments and AIs that constantly strove to find the hot new thing, something truly new and different was rare. 6,000 credits a gallon, though, was just stupid. And it wasn't even going to make it past Glaucod. Think of it this way, Wathay had said. We can't afford to get drunk on it, and we're sitting on enough portable cash that every crook in Glaucod Station has got to be trying to think of a way to break into our hold. Eh, Fabbit said. When do we make the transfers? No one bar on Glaucod Station had been able to buy their full cargo. Tomorrow, Wathay had said, then shuddered. Security bots on the way. Spinward Crossing, this is Athelkau. The value of your cargo has passed non-secure storage threshold. To prevent misadventure in the system, you are being moved to secure docking bay 116-alpha. Your cargo of Dragon's Tears will be moved to high security storage pending transfer to purchasing parties. A charge of 196 credits will be added to your transfer fees. System overrides in 5, 4, 3, and the ship started moving out of its current parking orbit. Athelkau, the AI for Glaucod Station, handled, well, everything. Parking, maneuvering, most transfers and commercial transaction assurance, air and water recycling, and, notably, security. 
Athelkau saw all. You did not argue with Athelkau when it decided something needed to be done. We're surrounded, Fabbit squeaked. Just stay cool, Wathayet said. We haven't done anything wrong. This time, Drast pointed out. And if the nosies get involved, they're bound to find something. Then let's not give them a reason to get any more involved than necessary, Wathayet said. Athelkau, roger that, override, thanks. We were just discussing the security problem. My job is to stay one step ahead of problems, Athelkau replied. Wathayet got the tickle for a priority hypernet call and sighed. As my bots should have pointed out, he calmed, all bids on Dragon's Tears are closed. Captain Wafayet, this is Nizgal Gorku. I wonder if we could get together for a chat. What? Fabbit asked as Wafayet's hair stood on end. Uh, Trader Gorku, it's uh, a pleasure to come with you. Uh, I, yes, I... Your ship is being moved to a security area at the moment. Why don't we have dinner on my yacht? I am conveniently parked right next to you. Isn't that a surprise? We'll be neighbors. No surprise at all. Gorku was certainly the richest person in the Glaucod system and consistently rated in the top five in the Federation. That he could get Athelkau to park the spinward crossing next to him was no surprise. That was how the system worked. The Glatun government was an enlightened Pluto-democracy. There were various levels and branches of elected government that set general policy. Most of it was then administered by artificial intelligences like Athelkau. There were, of course, hosts of bureaucrats, but most of them carried out tasks set by the AIs. But it was recognized when the basic documents were being developed that them that have gets. So part of the assumption was that people who were more economically advanced would do two things, wield more power and work to consolidate such power. The first was, in general, not a bad thing. Persons who have been raised to wield power are generally good at it, and the smart rich tend to train their children to be smart about being rich, getting more rich, and generally tending the Federation as a garden. But not always, and not always for the general betterment of the Federation. So there were various processes in the basic setup that allowed for change, such as the election of officials that, at the end of the day, could override the wishes of the functional oligarchy of wealthy elites, if enough non-elite Glatun felt it necessary. And the AIs were, specifically, programmed to create niches and openings that have-nots could exploit if they were smart and ruthless enough. Thus, they could be haves. Some of the elites would slowly fall out of elite status, and there was turnover. However, if someone was an elite, and Gorku was certainly one such, suggesting to the AI that the spinward crossing would best be parked next to one's yacht was no big deal. 
The surprise was that Gorku would take any direct interest at all. Yes, sir, Wafayette said aloud. I'd be glad to have dinner with you. What time? Twenty-three forty work for you? Twenty-three forty it is, sir, Wafayette said, pulling at his trans-scholar nervously. It's a deal, Gorku calmed, cutting the call. Your hair still isn't going down, Fabbit said. What's up? Drast calmed. I have to meet with Nizgal Gorku, Wathayat said. Oh, Drast calmed. You poor doomed bastard. We are so screwed. Are you enjoying the Ndolul, Captain? Gorku was a short-nosed glod like Wathayat. Wathayat wasn't prejudiced by any stretch of the imagination, but about the only snotty, stuck-up, long-nosed Korku he had got along with was Drast, so it was somewhat comforting. The two very large waiters were less so. They looked as if they were suckled on asteroids. Great, Wathayat said, taking another small bite. Truly wonderful. Well, when one is rich, one can afford good chefs, Gorku said, and proper ingredients. The blag has to be very fresh. I had a ship bring it in just this morning. The reason for the query is that you don't seem to be enjoying it. Haven't eaten much. I assure you. I do not regularly descend to cannibalism, and both the servers are quite gentle for Rangora. No problem at all, sir, Wathayat said, trying to take a larger bite. No chance. All four stomachs were rejecting input. I am, of course, interested in the dragon's tears, Gorku said, taking a sip of same. Lovely stuff. I assume you bought it on Earth. Yes, sir, Wathayat said, summoning just enough courage to defend never having to summon courage again. And the Terran we bought it from has a binding contract with us. Five percent of all dragon's tears subsequently sold by him to any Glatun or Glatun corporation, Gorku said. Would you like to hear the seven ways that I came up with to get around such a contract? That was before my AIs became involved. No, sir, Wathayat said, his shoulders slumping. Dear, dear Captain Wathayat, Gorku said, bobbing his head. I am not trying to steal your discovery. The same, however, cannot be said of my competitors. I am rather interested in Terra. Of course, I am interested in many things you understand. But Terra is one of those. It has such potential, and of course is quite close to Glaucard. Now that there is, in fact, something of worth to trade, the potentialities increase. I simply wish to ensure that my companies are part of that potential. You understand? Most of that potential, 
Guathead thought to himself. Yes, sir. What are your near-term arrangements? Gorku asked. In regards to further shipments of Dragon's Tears. Not what you plan on doing tomorrow with your money. I was a spaceman myself once. I'm to meet with my contact on Earth at a remote location on 2.38 at 10.40, Wathayat said, trying not to sigh. He's to have most of a Holdsworth of Dragon's Tears. Do you know how much of his world supply that represents? Gorku said. We have identified it as a plant product, probably a sap. A sap of what is the great question. There are over nine dozen saps that are used for foods or industrial products on the planet. I do not, sir, Wathayat said. I will say that he asked me to involve people, such as you, in trade, sir. He wants our big boys, as he said, involved so they might get the government to intervene with the Horvath. Over dragon's tears as a product. Unlikely, Gorku said musingly. But he's apparently fairly smart. More likely if corporations are involved than, pardon, a small free trader. Although you will get wealthy quickly, you don't have the established contacts, the methods. Hmm. Gorku wrinkled his snout in thought. If he's that smart, he's also not going to want to trade with a single corporation, the financier said. And he'll want more than trash at a circ. I think he wants to trade for credits and buy Atasurk here on Glaucard, Wathead said. Not impossible to arrange, Gorku said. If we have regular trade with Earth, going around the Horvath, of course, then establishing a commercial hypernode is a necessity. Very well. Meet with your contact. Make him aware that you have contacted corporations. When you return, we will have arrangements completed to establish regular trade. And as contracted, you get five percent. Thank you, sir, Wathayat said. Less fees, of course, Gorku said with another wrinkle of his nose. And the government will quickly designate it as a luxury good, which means higher taxes. But I think we will all make more than a bit of profit. And that is to the good, is it not? That was another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon for sitting down with our guest interviewer, DJ Butler, to discuss this broken world. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.